In World War II, the Eager Beavers were a ragtag B-17 crew in the Pacific Theater. They were known for volunteering for dangerous reconnaissance assignments, some of which would even be considered suicide missions. On the morning of June 16, 1943, the Eager Beavers accepted a mission no one else wanted. They were to fly to the islands of Buca and Bougainville to gather photo intelligence for the, an upcoming Allied invasion. There were some problems, though, in the mission. They'd have to fly hundreds of miles unescorted into enemy territory. B-17s are not necessarily known for speed and maneuverability. And to get usable pictures, the plane would have to fly steadily for 20 minutes above the islands, undoubtedly while being engaged by enemy fighter planes. At 4 a.m., the beat-up and battle-scarred bomber took to the sky for what General George Kenney would later call a mission that still stands out in my mind as an epic of courage unequaled in the annals of air warfare. They reached their target, were engaged by at least 20 enemy planes, and fought through 45 minutes of continuous combat in the air. Second Lieutenant Joseph Sarnowski was one of two men to receive the Medal of Honor for his efforts on that flight. In fact, this is the only time in World War II where two men received a Medal of Honor for the same uh, event. The pilot also received the Medal of Honor for his part. The rest of the crew received the Distinguished Service Cross for their part, and nearly all of them would be awarded Purple Hearts for injuries sustained. Lieutenant Sarnowski gave his life in the fight, even waving off medical attention at one point so that he could stay at his gun. Two minutes after he downed one more enemy fighter, he succumbed to his wounds. Sarnowski would, would have been sent home just three days after this mission, and records show that he didn't have to join it, but he felt it was his duty to go and do his part, not counting his life dear to himself. Now, in wartime, we understand stories like that. They are tragic, but familiar to us in a sense. We honor the courage of those who do not make personal safety their life's goal. We accept that at times, people are going to be sent to make the ultimate sacrifice because there is a greater mission being accomplished. And after all, if every soldier, sailor, marine, or airman said, no, my personal security is more important to me, well, then there would be no victory at all. We all understand that. The problem for us is that so often it doesn't feel like we are on the front lines of an all-important spiritual war. Day-to-day -day life with its many distractions can keep us from seeing how God might be leading us in our lives. And as we live out our regular day-to-day, -day, we can start to forget what our spiritual objectives really are, those spiritual assignments that have been given to us. We start to focus on safety and security and success in a way that might actually hinder the advance of the gospel and even discourage others in their walk with Jesus. Now, all of these issues were in play in our text as Paul moved ever closer to Jerusalem. It's after what we call his third missionary journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem, and we know that there's going to be a problem at the end of the line. As we read through this travelogue, we get a sense of a building tension. The story is, is definitely headed towards a dramatic climax. At the same time, we will also see a lot of Christians, godly Christians with grace and gifting and passion for the Lord, just living out regular lives. 
But in this case, some of them are gonna lose a bit of perspective when it comes to how they were counseling Paul the Apostle. There are a lot of places we could insert ourselves in the story tonight, and we can see how God can use regular old Christians doing regular old Christian things in order to accomplish his amazing work of providence. At the same time, we'll see that when Christians, even godly, passionate, spirit-filled Christians, when Christians lose perspective, it can lead us into wrong steps, which contradict God's leading and discourage others along the way. So we're going to start in verse two. We read there, finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. Keep your eyes open for providence throughout this section. Providence is God providing for his will to be done in the world. God has a will and it will be done. Dr. J. Vernon McGee defines providence as the means by which God directs all things. Uh, There's lots of wonderful examples of providence all over the pages of Scripture. Some of the most dramatic examples is how God sustained and preserved the nation of Israel so that the Messiah could be delivered through Israel, right? So that was a promise made early on in the Scriptures. Of course, in the Garden of Eden, God promised that the seed would come through the line of Eve, right? And then later on, it narrowed down, hey, the Messiah was going to come from Israel, and it kept narrowing down, narrowing down through the line of Judah, all of those sorts of things, right? And so along the way, the enemy, the devil, made it his business to eradicate Israel. No Israel, no Judah, no Messiah was his thinking. And so as we read through the Old Testament, we see these amazing moments and works of providence as God was able to uh, protect and preserve Israel against all odds. How was it that they were able to survive and produce a Messiah when Pharaoh systematically tried to destroy them through genocide? When Haman planned to systematically destroy them through genocide? Herod, all of the rest. It's because God provided the way. It was providence. Now, providence, however, does not mean that God causes every single thing to happen to people. For example, God is not the author of evil. God does not cause people to sin. God does not tempt you, the Bible says. God, in his strength, has given human beings a freedom to choose. He freed the wills of Adam and Eve, He has freed the wills of each human being afterward. But despite the freedom he's given us, we can be sure that God will accomplish his purposes. And we find that in God's will, there are some areas of wiggle room. How can we say that? Well, the Bible demonstrates it very plainly in some very clear ways. Let me give you a couple of examples. For example, in one of those scenes where the Jews were about to be eradicated, right, in the kingdom of Persia. Haman had launched his plot. It seemed like it was going to go off without a hitch. What were the Jews going to do? And then Mordecai comes to Esther, who was hiding the fact that she was a Jew. And what did he say to her? He said, listen, God is going to deliver Israel, obviously. His will is going to be done. Maybe you are the one that is going to be raised up for such a time as this. But he says something all important to our understanding of providence. But if you don't do it, then deliverance will arise from somewhere else. Wiggle room, right? So we take the Bible at its word there, that God put Esther 
uh, or God placed this opportunity in front of Esther, and she had a genuine choice whether she was going to stand up and say, hey, I'm a Jew, and I'm going to fight for my people, and I want to be used by God to deliver them, or she genuinely could have chosen to hide, as she had been hiding, allow the fate, you know, or allow, you know, you know what was going to happen to sort of play out, and what would have happened is that deliverance would have risen from somewhere else. We see so many examples of this kind of wiggle room in the Bible. One of my favorite examples of this that when I think about it is really astounding is the Exodus. So you, he delivers, God delivers the nation of Israel out of Egypt, brings them across the Mount Sinai, Red Sea, Ten Commandments, all that stuff happens. They get to the edge of the promised land. What does God say to them? He says, go on in, we're ready to go. And what did they say? No. And so what did God say? He said, then I guess we'll all wait around for 40 more years, right? Now, are we to think from that, well, God caused them to say no. It wasn't a genuine offer to really go in. He had planned for them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years that whole time. Number one, that's in contradiction to what we read plainly. Number two, that makes God a deceiver. And number three, that's saying that God is the author of their sin, that he caused them to rebel against him. So there was at least in that case, 40 years of wiggle room. We also see in the New Testament examples like when Peter says, hey, by us serving the Lord and being about his business, we can hasten the coming of the Lord, the the day of his coming. How does that work? There's wiggle room. God has a will and he is going to accomplish it. And there's wiggle room at points in that will. Another example, just because we like talking about providence, what did Jesus Christ himself say about John the Baptist? He said, he could have been Elijah, but you said no. So I guess we're gonna wait. And then when you think about Jesus' offer of the kingdom to the nation of Israel, if you don't believe that there's any wiggle room in providence or if you don't believe that human beings genuinely have a free will to make choices, to choose to submit to God or choose to reject what he asks them, then you have to say that Jesus wasn't genuinely offering the kingdom to Israel at all. Now he's got real problems because God is playing fast and loose with the truth in a lot of these situations. Moses, another deliverer of Israel, right? God came to Moses. He said, I would like you to be used to deliver Israel. Moses kept saying no over and over again. And God said, no, it's gonna be you. I would really rather not. Okay, we're gonna bring your brother. He will help you, but it's going to be you. That's what I've decided. So finally, Moses goes along. And as they set out on the trip, we have that very strange scene. Do you remember what happens? He sets out on the trip. And then it says, and the Lord met him and confronted him and was going to kill him. Why? Because he wouldn't circumcise his son, Gershom. And so his wife, Zipporah, had to do it. And she said, because you wouldn't honor the God in this way, you're a a husband of blood to me. And it was this really bad scene. But... The Bible says outright, God looked at Moses and he said, you know, I'm willing to have you be the deliverer, but you are rebelling against me here. So I'm gonna come against you and I'm gonna execute you in this situation. And then through the act of another, he's saved, right? And so providence. Now, God provides for his will to be accomplished. God will accomplish his purposes. And we find that in God's will, there are those areas of wiggle room. Now, in this passage, we're going to see some very wonderful, tender, personal providence poured out for Paul and his companions. Wherever Paul lands, 
God has provided shelter for him and supply for him and friendship for him in the home of loving Christians. He's gonna send messages to Paul that are meant to prepare him and strengthen him and build him up for what lies ahead. But here in verse two, what are we seeing? It's seeing that God didn't appear to them in a trance and say, this is the ship you should take. They had to find a ship. Would they take a large ship that took a beeline across the Mediterranean or would they take a smaller ship that would hug the coast? That was what smaller ships would do. They had to go and find a ship. They made a choice. And then through that choice, God provided what was needed for them. Verse three says this, after we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. Now, we have to remember that Paul knew that he was headed for arrest and suffering. That was not gonna be a surprise. He knew it. He had already said as much to the Ephesian elders in our last passage. Knowing that he was definitely headed for hard times, maybe to his own death. He had said to the Ephesians, yeah, I'm, we're never gonna see each other again, right? It was probably a very hard thing for him to pass Cyprus without stopping. There were friends there, a lot of them, many people to whom he was a father in the faith. Remember when he had gone through Cyprus with Barnabas, a dear friend of his, and they crossed the whole island doing a great deal of work. They had planted churches and, and been part of converting lots of people. Undoubtedly, there were dear friends there and they had to just pass by without stopping. This route they were taking would also bypass the city of Antioch where his home church was, full of friends and family who he loved so much. But this was the mission, this was the job. Remember, God the Holy Spirit was compelling him to go, he said in chapter 20. There was something for him in Jerusalem, something that needed doing. Not to mention that he and the eight brothers with him were bringing financial aid to the struggling church there. And so we find that Paul didn't prioritize his own emotional wants and needs in this situation. None of these guys did. These were not the kinds of guys who believed that line you hear sometimes, you have to love yourself first before you can love someone else. Have you heard that? If you type that into Google, man, do a lot of, a lot of articles come up. I don't recommend them. That's an impossible formula. You have to love yourself before you can love someone else because real love always includes self-sacrifice and selflessness. It means putting someone before yourself. At least that's biblical love. Instead, as they passed Cyprus and Antioch, and Paul, I'm sure, felt that twinge of disappointment or heartache, he was able to strengthen himself in the Lord and be reminded that he was following a trustworthy God who is good and loving and full of grace. And even though there was that temporal disappointment of, I may never see my friends in Antioch ever again or at least not in this world. He knew he would see them again in eternity. Paul was prepared mentally to go to his death. That's what he had told the Ephesians, and that's what he's gonna say in a minute here. And so I'm sure it would have hurt, but he didn't say, well, I need my needs met first. Everybody else can wait. As long as my emotional whatever, whatever is good, then I can do what the Lord wants me to do. He instead was willing to follow the Lord and trust in his grace. Now, as we read this section, we note that sometimes Dr. Luke will skip over years of time in the story, and then sometimes he zooms in on just a few days, and that's what's happening here. And so much of it seems really routine. We go to this port, they unload cargo, we talk to some people, we go to this port, we talk to some other people. We don't get a record of Paul raising the dead or planting any new churches. It's all very day-to-day. Now, I think that's great because we are not apostles 
And currently we do not find ourselves in the middle of some miraculous revival. I hope we will someday, but we don't right now. We as Christians are living what we might call regular lives, right? In some little town nobody's ever heard of like Troas, right? And so we're living out regular lives. And that's what we see happening among the Christians in these various cities that we're gonna encounter starting in Tyre. A lot is going on with Paul, to be sure, but as he passes through, we see believers in Tyre and Ptolemaeus and Caesarea live in regular lives. They're people with homes and families, but also people with spiritual gifts and a desire to honor God, and they have compassionate hearts. And what we'll see is that even though we are not apostles, that doesn't mean that we're not an important part of God's work. Look at verse four. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Hold there for a minute. Paul and his companions went and found the Christians living in Tyre. Really simple devotional question for us to ask then. Could someone find us as the Christians, let's say, in our neighborhood? If someone came to our neighborhood, to our neck of the woods and said, I gotta find some Christians, would they be able to find us? If someone was in need, whether they were fellow believers or non-Christians seeking help and answers, If inquiries were made, where are the Christians? Would we be found as disciples? You know, the church in America has not been driven underground yet. We're certainly a few clicks closer than we used to be. And certainly in times of violent persecution, things are very different, right? We've seen even in the book of Acts, when violent persecution breaks out, God doesn't come to the Christians and say, now just stand up and everybody get mowed down. We see that lots of people flee. Paul himself, he's lowered in a basket. He gets out of town sometimes when persecution comes against him. Other times he says, well, they just stoned me to death. I better go back in and talk to those exact same people. We see here that he expects fully to be arrested and executed because of the gospel. And so it's all about the Lord's leading. So things are a little bit different. We have brothers and sisters in many other parts of the world, in Africa and the Middle East, who are underground. And God doesn't demand that every single one of them come above ground and clang their pods and say, I'm a Christian, come kill us, right? But let's talk about us in America right now. We're not underground. We're not facing violent persecution at this point. And so there is no need for us to be camouflaged about our faith in Jesus Christ. We are supposed to shine like lights in the dark as a city on a hill, radiating the love and the truth of Jesus Christ to the world around us so that when someone needs to find the light, we are able to be found because you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, right? Now, the second part of the devotional question is this, once we are found, are we ready to serve? This was probably a pretty surprise visit for the believers there in Tyre, but they were ready to extend help and support when it was needed. Even though Paul and these guys were probably strangers to them, they said, absolutely, yes, let's do it. What do you need? And they sprang into action in an act of grace and compassion and provision. Verse four continues, through the spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Some commentators will suggest that Paul throughout this whole portion of his life was completely out of step of God, that he was actually in sin for his refusal to listen to the Holy Spirit. And they will use this verse as evidence of that point. Now, here's what we know. We know that the Holy Spirit authorized Paul to tell all Christians of the church age, follow me as I follow Christ, right? He's already written those words as of this time. He's already written to the Corinthians. So the Holy Spirit signed off on that and said, Paul, I'm inspiring you to write 1 Corinthians. 
here's what you're gonna write. And one of the things you're gonna write is follow me as I follow Christ and the Holy Spirit was good with that, okay? I think that's pretty important. We also know that the Spirit had compelled him to go to Jerusalem. He said so in the last chapter and we have no reason to believe that that wasn't accurate or true. And we know that after he gets to Jerusalem, Jesus Christ himself is gonna appear to him. And here's what he's gonna say. Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. So Jesus signed off on this trip too. He said, it's necessary for for you to go to Rome just like it was necessary for you to be here in Jerusalem. So I'm not exactly sure how guys get to the point where Paul's out of step with the Holy Spirit. I don't get that. So what should we make of this statement, though, in verse 4? Isn't the Holy Spirit telling him not to go? Well, as Paul had already said, in every city he was receiving messages from the Lord, telling him that chains and afflictions were waiting for him at the end of the trip. What the Spirit was sending as a heads up, the Christians were delivering as a hold off. And that's going to happen again in a few verses. And so we'll talk about it a little bit more when that happens. Before we move on, let's think about this. The gospel came to Troas as a result of Paul's persecution of the church before he was a Christian. That's why there were Christians in Troas. The church was in Jerusalem. Paul, back then he was known as Saul. He spilled out a violent, murderous, brutal campaign against the church, scattered them out, and this is one of the places where those Christians went. And now there are Christians there And we're quite a few years later, but now Paul, who's a Christian, is coming through. And as he stops there, uh, this man who sought to destroy God's people, he's now been redeemed and transformed, and he's being ministered to by the very people who were driven out of Jerusalem by his violence. That's providence. That's God saying, I'm going to have my way on the earth. You think you're going to destroy the church, Saul of Tarsus. Let me show you what I'm going to do. In a few years, these people who you want to murder are going to be serving you dinner, and you're going to be serving them as a pastor teacher and as an apostle and as someone who is building them up in their faith. They're going to become your brothers and sisters, these people who you are trying to butcher as a non-believer. Amazing. That's providence. Sharing a meal and a room in a house might seem small compared to the ministry of planting churches or writing scripture or working miracles, but it was such a blessing and a help to Paul. Uh, You see, in towns like Tyre, the inns would frequently double as brothels, the scholars will tell us, right? It's not exactly the place you and your Christian buddies want to spend a week while the ship is unloading. Jesus promised us, that even a cup of cool water has eternal merit in heaven's record books. And that as we go out, it doesn't matter if the things that we do for the Lord or the opportunities he gives us, it doesn't matter if they are small in the world's eyes. If the Lord has asked us to do them, then they have eternal merit. They have eternal value. And they might be one of the things that history hinges on. And we have so many wonderful examples of that in the scriptures as well. Verse five, when our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey while all of them with their wives and children accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship and they returned home. Some of the most meaningful ministry of all is done in the home. What a beautiful thing to see that these families were together in prayer 
and unity. If you have plans for how you wanna serve God and they don't include your family or they don't include your local fellowship of believers, then you're just missing something essential. We wanna be creating opportunities for our kids and families to pray and serve together like we see here. Verse seven, when we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. So God provided another group of caring friends at the next stop on the trip. Now, our culture tends to be more skeptical and standoffish, more individualistic. It's good for us to be reminded that the world will know we are Christians by our love for one another. Of course, when it comes to the wider Christian community, it is okay for us to have differences of opinion on certain doctrines, differences of opinion on how ministry should be done, all of those certain things, boundaries, all of that. That's all fine. But we wanna let the Lord grow a kind of love in us that we that is so abundant that we are willing to give food and shelter to the guy who killed some of our friends 20 years ago, right? That's what's happening. That's who Paul is. Paul was probably responsible for the death of some of these people's friends, maybe even their family members. And they said, yeah, come on in, come on in. We forgive you, we love you. Here's food out of our cupboard. Here, stay in my bed. I mean, that's, that's incredible love. And that's what God calls us to. He says, that's how the world is gonna know that you're Christians by that kind of love that, that does the, what is impossible in the minds of men. Verse eight says, the next day we left and came to Caesarea where we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, stayed with him. It's been 20 years since we last saw Philip in the book of Acts. He's already been such a fine example to us of faithfulness and boldness, but here he shines again in his forgiveness and humility. Listen, Paul's sin, Paul's rebellion against God before he was a Christian had personally impacted Philip's life. Philip had to run for his life from Saul who was trying to hunt him down. Philip was probably on the top of the kill list that Paul was carrying with him as he went down the road. And now, some of the commentators will also point this out. Think about this. Now that guy, okay, it's one thing, okay, he became a Christian, at least he's not persecuting us anymore. But now that guy has become the great apostle, right? Now that guy is being used by God in incredible ways, receiving incredible revelations of God. is gonna be one of the you know, architects of the church, giving us all of this scripture. If I'm Philip, I'm thinking, you couldn't give me an epistle to write? Like, how many, how many epistles does this dude have to write? I watched this guy murder my friend, and then he chased me out of town, and I had to uproot my whole life. That's what I would have done, because... I'm gross and carnal, right? But what do we see Philip doing? It's amazing. He didn't complain. He didn't withhold. He didn't make passive aggressive comments. He brings Paul into his house and he introduces him to his family. That's amazing. As the team relaxed in his house, Philip would have been an incredible resource to Luke, who was gathering accounts and testimony for these books that he was writing, to Timothy, who was called to be a pastor and would be told by Paul, do the work of an evangelist. And he would have said, hey man, you're Philip the evangelist. Why don't you talk to me about that? Around the table, they would have heard the stories of incredible revival in Samaria, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. At the same time, we realize that despite his history and despite the amazing ways that he had been used by God, despite his gifting as an evangelist, Philip wasn't too important to still wait tables. So waiting tables for these guys. 
His house became a B&B for nine weary travelers headed toward Jerusalem. Verse nine, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Again, Luke draws our attention to family ministry. Raising kids in the Lord isn't less important than being an evangelist. We don't need to rank service to God. What is more important? What is more cool? What is more prominent? Those are all human measurements, right? We know that's true because Jesus called his guys aside one day and he said, look at the widow. She put in two coins that are worth nothing. She gave more than everybody. And so the Lord is establishing there that the way we rank and categorize and prioritize things often has nothing to do with how heaven does it. And so in a sense, you can be Billy Graham, right? Evangelizing a stadium full of 100,000 people or you can just be a guy who raised some godly kids. And one is not worth more than the other in an eternal, cosmic, heavenly sense. We don't need to rank service to God. It's not, also, it's not about picking one or the other. Well, I was an evangelist, and so I let my family slide. Or, hey, I'm focused on my family, so I don't do anything else to serve the Lord. That's not it either. You know, serving God isn't a buffet. It's not Sizzler. Rest in peace, Sizzler. I've heard Sizzler's not opening anymore, but... Serving God is about calling and gifting and God's leading in your life. God called Philip to evangelize and to raise these kids. God called Paul to evangelize and write the scripture. He calls you and I to certain duties and opportunities. And they will not only be outside the home, but our service to the Lord begins within our own house. A word to young people before we move on here. Seek your gift. You're gifted by God to do something, or you're going to be. Seek it out. Figure it out. If you were being listed in the book of Acts, how are you going to be described? Would you be included as one of the people who was praying, or as one of the people who was a servant of God, like the young people we see here? Seek it out. God wants to use your life right now. Verse 10. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. We've met Agabus before a number of chapters ago. There he gave an earlier prophecy that a famine was coming to the Roman world. And you know what happened? A famine came to the Roman world. Okay, this is important. He was bona fide. Leading up to the election, I know this is sensitive, not trying to step on anybody's toes, okay? I understand everything's all in limbo, but leading up to the election a few weeks ago, some of our brothers and sisters in more charismatic circles, very prominently and publicly, made some very specific prophecies concerning the election and concerning Donald Trump. Prophecies that didn't come true, okay? I'm not happy about it, it's just reality. One prominent pastor made a public prophecy. Then he apologized on social media because it was wrong. Then he removed his apology. And now this is his quote about it, okay? If the outcome remains the same, I will repost my apology video. If my prophetic word turns out to be right, I'll do a chicken dance in my spandex. End quote. Now listen, The Bible is pretty clear that if you say you're a prophet and you make a prophecy and it doesn't come to pass, then you're not a prophet. We believe in the gift of prophecy. 
We believe that God can give a vision of something that's going to happen in the future like we see here. We have no reason to believe that that gift has ceased. But what we don't see are people making prophecies and then saying, "Mm, eh, it didn't really happen. You should be very thankful that you don't live under the Mosaic law. Because under the Mosaic law, the congregation would have taken that dude out and stoned him to death, right? And so we kind of laugh it off because it's silly and absurd, but this is really serious too. Because when people get up and say, thus saith the Lord, and then make a prophecy, that had better be true. And if it's not, then you're a false prophet. And we don't need to listen to anything else that you have to say. Okay. Now, what Agabus said here was not news to Paul, but it was shocking to the other Christians at the meeting. Verse 12, when we heard this, Luke including himself here, when we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So the reaction was the same the fine folks at Tyre had, only this time it included Luke and the other guys traveling with Paul, Timothy and the rest. They were desperately trying to convince Paul to not go to Jerusalem so that he could avoid suffering. And what we learn here is twofold. First, personal safety, security, and success is not the end goal for a Christian life. It's just not. This is one of the big problems with what we call the prosperity doctrine, the prosperity gospel, health and wealth movement. And God always wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy and all these sorts of things. I guess Jesus missed the memo. I guess Paul missed the memo. I guess all of the apostles who were all martyred missed the memo, right? The personal safety, security, and success is not the end goal for your life as a Christian. And the second thing we learn is this. What we want for people we love is not always what God wants for their lives. They wanted Paul safe and doing ministry throughout the world and planting churches. And those were good desires, but God did not want that for Paul at this point in his life. God wanted Paul in front of some rulers and kings and ultimately the emperor of Rome. The price for that opportunity was going to be high. It was going to cost Paul a lot of hardship and suffering and the loss of his freedom, but that's what the Lord wanted. Now, listen, if someone came to us and said, uh, we will give you a genuine chance to have an audience with pick whatever despicable but powerful person you want, you know, with this dictator or that dictator, this world leader or that world leader, we will give you a genuine opportunity to preach the gospel to them. It's just gonna cost you five grand. Would we pay that? I think we'd all start kind of digging into our pockets and say, yeah, I think we could fund that. Okay, well, for $10,000, we'll put you in front of the UN and let you talk as long as you want about Jesus Christ and what he has done for those people. Isn't that worth it? And then we just cascade it all the way up, right? Now, if they said, okay, we're gonna do this as well. We just need to take one of your fingers, right? It's getting personal. But if we thought about it for a minute, wouldn't we think, okay, which finger? (laughs) Right? If you're talking about like my right ring finger, I think we could do this thing, right? So the cost was going to, it was gonna cost something, but what an incredible opportunity. Paul's gonna talk to governors. He's gonna talk to kings. He's gonna talk to Caesar Nero. He's gonna talk to all of these centurions. 
He's gonna write these prison epistles that we are also thankful for, for thousands of years have ministered to countless millions of people. Aren't we thankful that Paul was in prison for a while so that he could give us those things? With all due respect, and I don't wanna be rude, but like, do we really care if he planted one more church in Asia Minor or would we rather have the prison epistles? Historically speaking, we'd rather have the prison epistles because that's the greater victory. That's the greater work. That's the more impact on eternity. The church in Smyrna, that doesn't exist anymore. The church in Ephesus, that doesn't exist anymore. But we all are holding in our hands and in our laps the product of Paul going to prison. And they are a value that can't be estimated, can't be cataloged, can't be prioritized in any way. Now, we are seeing here that even dedicated, godly, spirit-filled Christians can make a mistake. Listen, they are making a mistake here in verse 12. As students, we can look back and see that they were in this situation, these wonderful people were focused on a wrong priority. God had just spoken through Agabus about what was going to happen, and he did so prophetically, and they said, let's avoid that. Let's make sure that doesn't happen. Jesus himself had said, remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to save their life will lose it. Now, while he was speaking of the end times there in that chapter of Luke, he was also clearly teaching that having a temporal material set of priorities would lead to disaster for a spiritual life. Instead, God's people are commanded to take up their cross, dying to self each and every day. When we turn the wheel of our own lives, or when we're giving advice to others about their life, the highest goal of a Christian is not whatever you do, avoid suffering and instead try to be successful. This is a good word for us parents. We have a duty not to raise our kids into material wealth. Our duty is to raise them into faithful service to the Lord. Don't tell your kid not to do something just because you think the paycheck won't be big enough in the end. Teach them to follow God, no turning back. So Paul's friends, out of love, were pressuring him to change course, and it was a huge discouragement for him. Verse 13, Paul replied, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. People around us are headed for suffering. The church needs to rally together to strengthen one another for it, not undermine one another's stability. We need to have a biblical approach to difficulty and trial and suffering, a biblical perspective on life and what really matters so that we can support one another when we're weak. Verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. So these believers are mature and spirit-filled. And so despite this short lapse out of love and affection for their friend, they snap out of it quickly. And once again, we see they're right back onto that right perspective. They're not angry. They're surrendered to the Lord and trusted that his will was good and therefore worth pursuing. As we make decisions or share advice with others, the thesis of our thoughts is what is God's will? Now, from that point, we advise and we pray and we plan, but that's where the starting point is. That's where we launch from. What is God's will? Not what do I think would be best or most safe or most secure or most uh, you know, successful for you, but what is God's will? Verse 15, after this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. 
Though the prophecy centered on Paul, it's good to see that these other Christians, both the locals and the gang of eight, didn't chicken out. They knew that trouble was waiting in Jerusalem and didn't know when it would hit, but they still walked with him. Good for them. Verse 15 says, we packed our bags. They were deploying with him. And once again, we see God provided friends, shelter, and help along the way. He's so trustworthy. Through these verses, we see there is a spot for everyone in God's plan. Kids and dads and moms and wives, the young, the elderly, people in the ministry, people not in the ministry. We're all part of God's providential work. Our portion may not be great in the eyes of men. Maybe we're just providing a meal or two, but it's great in God's eyes. It's part of the victory he's winning. The eager beavers weren't the ones to drop the bomb and end the war, but their part was necessary, right? They needed to do what they did. Luckily for all of us, they didn't shrink from the cost. And some of them paid in full, paid the ultimate price for that victory. You and I may, in one sense, live a very regular day-to-day life, but on a spiritual level, we are part of God's providence and part of a cosmic struggle. It may cost us dearly to do our part, but we can be sure that even the little missions matter. So we must keep his purposes as our aim. Our lives are not about our own safety or security or success. They're meant to be much, much more than that. We follow the Lord into eternal victory, fearing no evil and no turning back. 